Hello and welcome to this Discovering Music from the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. Counterpoint is today's subject and I'll be looking at it with the pianist Sasha Melnikov and the harpsichordist Gary Cooper. I'm Stephen Johnson. One of the great monuments in the history of Counterpoint and even the history of music altogether is the two volumes of Preludes and Fugues 24 Preludes and 24 Fugues in Major and Minor Keys by J.S. Bach. The great pianist and composer Ferruccio Busoni said that the Bach Preludes and Fugues were the standard for which you could learn piano style for today. They're a marvelous display of the technique of counterpoint. They're Bach really showing off what he can do in this medium. But they're also, at the same time, a remarkable display of compositional imagination, expressive range, and dramatic intensity. It's real composing at the highest level, satisfying to the head and to the heart, and also just for sheer beauty of sound. And that's true whether you play it on the instrument of the day for which Bach wrote it, which is the harpsichord, or the instrument of today, the piano. Both have their advantages. Well, first of all, is there a such a thing as a classic Bach prelude and fugue in the second book of the 48, which is what we'll be looking at today? Well, I think perhaps the E major prelude and fugue might be a good candidate, because the fugue has a particularly neat orderly, kind of formalized quality. If you wanted to go give a demonstration of what fugal writing is about in the simplest possible terms, the E major fugue just about meets the book. But the prelude is also interesting as well because of what it tells us about this whole business of counterpoint. It's kind of freer and more lyrical than the fugue, and yet it also has its contrapuntal side as well. To show you what this is about, we'll uh, give you the opening of the E major prelude. First of all, what you have is a melody in the right hand, but the at the same time, this melody has a kind of shadow, another voice underneath it that follows it. It's a line that echoes the twists and turns of the melody, and it's all in one hand. Could you just play the right hand for Gary? You can see what Busoni meant about it being a marvellous way to learn the art of keyboard playing because there you actually have to create the effect of two different lines just with one hand. Now, it's easy enough on the piano, Gary, to, um, to create the effect of two different voices. You can vary the touch, but how do you do it on the harpsichord? The pianist, uh, it seems to me, very often sings the lines in his head and then transfers it through his fingers. and. On the harpsichord, you are much more restricted in your scope of what you can do. And I find myself doing the same thing and don't know exactly how it comes out. But uh, I, I find the imagination is the key to it, hearing it in your head. There is another voice, though, isn't there, at the same time as this? Yeah. The left hand is doing something too, but it's doing something very simple, isn't it? It's just holding one note at first, and then the left hand too gets drawn into this contrapuntal game and starts shadowing the other two voices. Perhaps you could show us how that works, Gary. So you've got an effect there, a bit like a hall of mirrors. You've got a melody on the top, and then you put a kind of mirror underneath it and get another line by kind of mirroring that first one, and then put another mirror under that and get the bass line, as it were, from that, from the reflection of the reflection. And this kind of intensifies, isn't it? Because the top voice starts to sort of take flight lyrically, but still you get this, this kind of contrapuntal echoing, this reflecting going on in the other voices. Could you, could you show us some of that, please? Thank you. 
And then finally, what happens is that the melody seems to kind of break free from this. Is that the effect for you? Yes, yes. So let's hear the whole of this prelude now. And if you try and think of it as the right hand trying to sing an aria on its own, a melody line, and these other lines that imitate and reflect it, and the tension going all the time between an aria, a simple tune and accompaniment, and something that's much more complicated, a kind of multifaceted reflection of it going on underneath. Let's hear the whole of the prelude in E major. Now, after the prelude, comes the E major fugue. Now, fugue is the form 
in which you start with a very simple theme on its own, or sometimes not such a simple theme, and then extra voices come in one by one with versions of this theme. And the E major is almost a kind of demonstration fugue because very conveniently for our purposes, it has a very simple fugal theme or subject, to use the proper textbook terms. Now, Bach's fugue subjects range immensely in character. They can be very long and complicated with several ideas that are ripe for development. A good example of this might be the fugue from book two in B-flat minor. Several ideas that an ingenious composer can take and develop and work out there. Sometimes a fugue subject can be intensely dramatic, with the drama intensifying as the second fugal voice comes in. A good example of that would be the fugue in A minor. The fugue subject comes in and then again at a different pitch, while the first voice goes on to a fabulous display of baroque, wild theatricality. But the fugue in E major is very simple, quite basic compared to those. It's just five notes and the simplest rhythm. Couldn't be much simpler than that. The answer, that's when the second voice takes up the theme, comes in on the dominant. That's a fifth above the first voice. That's one of the absolute inflexible rules of fugue writing of Bach's time. As the second voice comes in, the first voice you'll hear continues in faster notes, sometimes following the answer, sometimes moving in the opposite direction, what you call contrary motion. But it's just like those voices shadowing each other that we heard at the beginning of the prelude. This is how it works at the beginning of the fugue. Then more voices enter. In this case, there are four parts, four different voices. And they occur at the same pitches as the first two voices that we heard. But the other voices continue. They remain active and independent underneath. The effect is of four lines that have a life of their own. And that really is the essence of fugue. You're never listening to just a, a tune or a line or an accompaniment. You're actually listening to four voices, each of which has an equal and at the same time opposite contribution to make. A little later, Bach does the same thing that he's just done at the beginning, bringing in the voices one by one with the fugue subject, only now he compresses it so that the voices start much sooner after each other. They pile up on top of each other. This is a device that's known as stretto.
Eventually, everything is neatly rounded off. There's a sense of the complete triumph of order and proportion that you get in a lot of Baroque art. It's a regular, formalized, balanced structure. But at the same time, as you listen to it, there's an extraordinary sense of vitality that comes from the sense that you're listening to voices responding to each other, imitating each other, reflecting each other, sometimes disagreeing with each other, but at the same time, always independent, always living their own life, pursuing their own course. The great German writer of the late 18th and early 19th century, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, made a marvelous remark about Bach hearing one of the fugues played. He said that he thought he could hear the immortal harmony communing with itself. As we listen to this fugue in E major, you certainly do get that impression. It is an incredibly harmonious, balanced, contained whole. And yet at the same time, within that balance, you can hear this remarkable communication going on, this echoing, reflecting, disputing between the four voices that make up the texture.
Now, just over 50 years ago, another composer wrote a remarkable set of 24 preludes and fugues, also taking in all the major and minor keys, like Bach. And that's the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. He wrote his 24 preludes and fugues in 1950-51. That was after a visit to Leipzig for the celebrations of the bicentenary of Bach's death in 1950. Now, it was actually quite a striking and brave thing for a composer to do in Soviet Russia to write what effectively is a series of studies in counterpoint, because at this time, I don't know if you know, but Stalinist Russia was an extraordinarily authoritarian tyranny, and the Soviet authorities at the time were obsessed with rooting out and punishing severely something that they called formalism. Now, it's not always very clear to understand what exactly it was they meant by formalism, but it's certainly one thing that they really didn't like and really strongly disapproved of was anything that smacked of complexity for its own sake. Music had to be direct and simple, and the kind of thing that the ordinary Soviet man, the ordinary Soviet worker could understand. And sometimes composers who were found guilty of writing things that were considered obtuse or overcomplicated were very severely punished indeed. So... Writing a series of studies in such an abstract form as counterpoint could have seemed a bit risky, but in fact it was quite a triumph for Shostakovich because he put his, all his artistry into these works in a way that produced something very striking and very alive, in a way that in many ways is worthy to compare with the Bach. We've got an example which uh, Alexander is going to play for us now, which is uh, from the beginning of the prelude in G major. Now, the beginning is actually interesting because it's not very pianistic and certainly not what you'd call contrapuntal. It has the character of a solid Russian chant. You could certainly imagine it played by the full orchestral string section. It has a very pompous, sort of solid, magisterial quality, which is then subverted by something faster, perhaps a little cheekier, a folk-like melody in the right hand. So in a sense, the counterpoint here is between those two highly contrasted kinds of theme. The contrast is intensified in the course of this prelude, and eventually the two of them, however, are combined, one on top of each other, to make a, a marvellous example of strict counterpoint in the old sense. And then comes the fugue, also in G major. There's a very lively subject this time, but uh, there's an interesting new kind of counterpoint in the way that this fugue subject is answered. This is called rhythmic counterpoint. Could you play just the beginning of the fugue, Sasha? I wonder if you noticed that extraordinary, almost hiccuping, yo-yoing, seesawing effect between the two voices when the, the answer comes in. Sasha, could you play from where the answer comes in slower this time so we can hear what's happening? So 
So you've got one rhythm in one hand and a very interestingly, strikingly contrasted rhythm in the other. That's a really classic example of what the textbooks called rhythmic counterpoint. It's not so much the voices are moving melodically in opposite directions, they're moving rhythmically in opposite directions. And that's a device that Shostakovich got straight from Bach. Anyway, let's hear that prelude and fugue in G major now. So you can hear Shostakovich's very modern response to those very old ideas contained in Bach.
I'm glad that Sasha was able to pick out that business of rhythmic counterpoint for us there, because we can make a direct comparison with one of Bach's fugues, actually, from the second book of the 48. Actually, interestingly enough, the Bach fugue that closely resembles that there at that point is also in G major, so that's a connection that really does seem to suggest that Shostakovich was thinking of this particular Bach fugue as he wrote it, even though the effect is quite different. Gary, could you, could you play us a, just a little way in from the fugue in G major so that we can hear an example of Bach doing the same thing, of those kind of rhythms in the different hands and the different voices bouncing off each other? We take that nice and slowly now, again, so that we can just pick that out. It's interesting, that isn't it? A composer can take flight, as it were, from imitating a device that a composer uses and come up with something completely different, in effect. It's a marvellous example of that. Well, let's hear the whole of that uh, Bach fugue in G major now, because there's a lot of things in this that I think we, we can home in and, uh, for future reference. Now, Gary, I understand that's actually Bach's second version of that fugue, am I right? Yes, as far as we understand it, the, the first version is about two-thirds the length. doesn't have the flourish at the end. That marvellous flourish yes, at the exactly. end, like a kind of throwaway gesture. Yes. And it, as far as I know, it's the only Bach fugue in which he actually writes out a continuo part halfway through. A continuo um, part, so yes. he actually is indicating not just the notes, but also harmonies that, that could yes, be enriched. Yes, I mean, it's almost anti-contrapuntal. You just get the counterpoint in the bass, and then three-part harmony in the right hand. There's this kind of thing quite helpful, because, I mean, this is one thing that harpsichordists are often required to do, is play the continuo part, the sustaining harmonies that yes. hold the texture together in a Baroque piece. Do pieces like this, in a way, give you a clue about what it was that Bach wanted you to do? I've always felt that... In order to study continue, you need to play the solo music of the particular composer, and Bach is a good point. So uh, you do have to use your imagination quite exactly. freely. Well, back to Shostakovich, who's a very different case, a contemporary composer, or almost contemporary composer, um, who uh, does, when he writes out the music, does expect you to play pretty much what's written on the page. This fugue in E minor is what's called a double fugue. There's first of all a fugue on one subject, then a fugue on another subject, and then the two subjects combined in a really ingenious kind of contrapuntal working out. But the, the second fugal theme that Shostakovich introduces is actually rather cleverly derived from the first theme that we've just heard. Could you
you bring out the connection between the two themes for us, Sasha? Just play the first theme and then the second theme. And that's the first theme. So they follow exactly the same shape, although they decorate it differently. There is a clever derivation of the devices that Shostakovich is using from Bach. It's all of it has been learned, as it were, from Bach. Bach is the starting point.
magnificent display of counterpoint in the classical and the modern sense from Dmitry Shostakovich there in his Prelude and Fugue in E minor from the 24 Preludes and Fugues. You're listening to Discovering Music with me, Stephen Johnson, the pianist Alexander Melnikov, and the harpsichordist Gary Cooper. And the subject today is counterpoint, as reflected in the Preludes and Fugues of Bach and Shostakovich. We'll stay with Shostakovich for a moment, but there's an example, I think, of Shostakovich, the ironist, in the little prelude we're going to hear next, which is the prelude in A major. It starts for a moment with a little kind of tease, because Shostakovich gives us the impression that perhaps what we're really going to hear is a fugue. After all, this could be a perfectly presentable fugue subject. Actually, Shostakovich seems to have had a very specific Bach model in mind. It's one of the most lively and the most brilliant preludes from Book Two of the 48, the D major, and as you'll hear, it starts with a very similar theme. Yes, I think we really ought to hear the whole of the prelude, actually, at this point, because Shostakovich really does seem to be composing with the expectation, in a way, that people know this Bach prelude, or at least have heard it. So it would help, perhaps, if we had the thing clearly in our mind. Could you play us the whole of the prelude now?
Now try and keep that in your mind as Alexander now plays the prelude in A major by Shostakovich. Shostakovich begins with a theme which sounds very like that theme of that D major prelude by Bach we've just heard, but he goes off in a completely different direction with it. He seems to toy with it, to play with our expectations, almost to doodle with it, and at one point near the end he nearly kind of goes off into a daydream. It's lovely, but it's even lovelier when you know the Bach that it's based on, so in a way that what Shostakovich is doing here is writing a piece that counterpoints the Bach prelude that we've just heard. Thank you. Anybody, anything they'd like to ask? I'm interested, I'm interested to know from the performers, if you're playing these lines that are one on top of each other and very, very complicated, how on earth do you divide your mind to be able to play each of those lines individually? It's like learning to drive. You, you think it's impossible to start with, and then you get used to it. And I'd learned the organ earlier on, and I realized that anything I'd tried after that would be easy <laughs> compared with uh, playing pedals and hands as well so um, I, I suppose you start to to think and look in a different way at the music and to hear it in a different way different layers Sasha you learned the piano at a very young age indeed I mean can you remember sort of applying you to so this, this problem of how you think in terms of different lines moving at the same time or did it all come naturally no nothing came naturally no. it came naturally no it didn't <laughs> no well, I'm relieved to hear that actually <laughs> No, I think the, the interesting question is not how does one do it, but how one hears it. And I think everybody has his or her limit. I think maybe someone like Glenn Gould could hear 17, I think, or something like this, voices simultaneously. Mm, I know, I know for me, I know very well my uh, upper limit, which is something like three and a half. <laughs> I, can, I can constantly hear three lines. Really. But basically, once you've got the idea of it up in your head, then the fingers will do the work. That's it, is it? Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like it in today's session. <laughs> Thank you very much. One of the most impressive preludes and fugues 
in Shostakovich's collection is that in F sharp minor. Now, the prelude is unambiguously a prelude. There's no pretense about being a fugue here. And it starts with one of those little fairground tunes that Shostakovich uses, a kind of haunted fairground tune that reminds me a little bit of the kind of uneasy world of his tragic Fourth Symphony. It seems at first to be very clearly tonal, almost like a child's playground song. But then comes this extraordinary chromaticism, this wheedling, nervy chromaticism, this tortuous element, and this little dislocations that come into the tune that create this strange sense of unease. It isn't as clear-cut as it initially seems. simple enough at first, and then those extraordinary chromaticism at the end, blurring that sense of it belonging to any clear key. Now, Bach uses chromaticism too. In fact, sometimes he uses it quite extraordinarily in his uh, preludes and fugues. The prelude in A minor from book two is one of those themes that Schoenberg liked to pick out, because in the short compass of just two bars, it manages to contain all 12 notes of the chromatic scale. But I think it might have been maybe more the emotional character of a theme like this that would have appealed to Shostakovich, because it has something of his own haunted, nervy world here. And also, you can feel that that tonal bass is not quite so steady and secure in this piece than it is in, in some of Abach's other pieces. After all that 
tortuous chromaticism, that little flourish at the end, that strikes me as al almost comical. Gary, that, do you find elements of humour sometimes in Bach? I know he's portrayed sometimes as the serious, unsmiling composer, but I can't help hearing a suggestion of perhaps irony at the end there. I just find him so comprehensive. He, he holds every single emotion and every mood. Uh, and there, there is humour and irony, as you suggest, and also the G major fugue. The one heard we earlier. heard earlier, where you kind of sweep up yes. the keyboard at the end. And he just um, throws it away at the end, it's, um, just out of nothing. The fugue that Shostakovich follows that F-sharp minor prelude with, it has a very eloquent, dark, lamenting quality. In fact, it's been compared to a black American spiritual. It certainly has something of that kind of lamenting, similar kind of quality. Can we just hear the fugue subject, Sasha? Now, some of the most extraordinary harmonic moments happen in the fugue, just as in that Bach prelude we heard a moment ago, when Shostakovich combines that fugue with other versions of itself. And as he does so, the chromaticism, as it were, multiplies. And any sense you have that there's a, a clear key really begins to shake completely. It becomes extraordinarily chromatic as the fugue subject and the counter subject intertwine. Perhaps you could give us a little example of that from later on. eloquent, expressive harmonies, but they're created simply by using the same kind of strict contrapuntal devices that Bach uses in his fugues. They result by calculation, although they sound so incredibly spontaneous and expressive. So let's hear the whole now, finally, of Shostakovich's Prelude and Fugue in F-sharp minor. Let's listen to the prelude, just listen to the way that the chromaticism in that theme, those little ambiguous, sinuous, tortuous moments, set up the feeling of what's going to follow in the fugue. 